Chapter 57 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 57. Albert obeyed, and when they began to descend from the base of the Schreckenstein to the valleys beneath, Consuelo became calmer. Pardon me, said she, leaning gently on his arm. I have certainly been mad myself in the grotto. Why recall it, Consuelo? I should never have spoken of it. I knew that you would wish to efface it from your memory, as I must endeavor to blot it from mine. I do not wish to forget it, my friend, but to entreat your pardon for it. If I were to relate the strange vision which I had while listening to your bohemian airs, you would find that I was out of my senses when I caused you such terror. You cannot believe that I would trifle with your reason or your repose. Heaven is my witness that I would lay down my life for you. I know that you set no great value on life, Consuelo, but I, I feel that I would covet it earnestly if... Well, if what? If I were beloved even as I love. Albert, I love you as much as allowable. I would doubtless love you as you deserve to be loved, if. It is your turn to speak. If insurmountable obstacles did not make it a crime. And what are these obstacles? I vainly seek them around you. I only find them in your heart. Doubtless in the memory of the past. Do not speak of the past. It is hateful to me. I would rather die than live over that past again. Your rank, your fortune, the opposition and anger of your relatives. Where should I find courage to meet these, Albert? I possess nothing in this world but my pride and independence. What would remain were I to sacrifice them? My love and yours if you loved me. But I feel that this is not the case, and I only ask your pity. How could you be humiliated by giving me happiness as an alms? Which of us could then take precedence of the other? How would you be lowered by my fortune? Could we not quickly cast it to the poor if it oppressed you? Know you not that I have long resolved to employ it according to my convictions and my tastes? That is to say, to get rid of it, when my father's loss should add the trouble of his inheritance to that of separation. Are you afraid of being rich? I have vowed poverty. Are you afraid of my name rendering you illustrious? It is a false name. The true one is proscribed. True, I shall never resume it, lest I were to injure the memory of my father. But in my obscurity, I swear to you no one shall be dazzled by it. And as to the opposition of my friends, oh, if there be no other obstacle but that, only tell me so, and you shall see. It is the greatest of all, the only one, which all my devotion, all my gratitude toward you cannot remove. You do not speak the truth, Consuelo. You dare not swear it. It is not the only obstacle. Consuelo hesitated. She had never told an untruth, yet she wished to repair the evil she had done her friend 
who had saved her life and who had watched over her for months with the tender solicitude of a mother. She wished to soften her refusal by pointing out obstacles, which she really believed insurmountable. But Albert's questions troubled her, and her own heart was a labyrinth in which she lost herself, because she could not say with certainty whether she loved or hated this singular man, toward whom a mysterious and powerful sympathy had attracted her, while at the same time an invincible dread and something even approaching dislike made her tremble at the mere idea of an engagement with him. It seemed to her at this moment as if she hated Anzaletto. Could it be otherwise when she compared his coarse selfishness, his low ambition, his baseness, his perfidy, with Albert's generous, humane, pure spirit, so deeply imbued with lofty virtue? The only stain which could sully the latter was this attempt on Zdenko's life, which he could not help believing. But this suspicion might be the offspring of her imagination, a nightmare which a moment's explanation could dispel. She pretended to be preoccupied and not to have heard Albert's last question. Heaven, she exclaimed, stopping to look at a peasant who passed at some distance. I thought I saw Sedenko. Albert shuddered, dropped Consuelo's arm, which he held within his own, took a few steps forward, then stopped and returned toward her, saying, What an error is yours, Consuelo. This man has not the least resemblance to. He could not say Zdenko. His features betrayed violent agitation. You thought it yourself, however, for a moment, said Consuelo, who looked at him attentively. I am nearsighted, and I ought to have recollected that this meeting was impossible. Impossible? Zdenko is then far away? So far that you need fear nothing from his madness. Can you explain his sudden hatred to me after his previous display of sympathy? I told you that it arose from a dream which he had on the eve of your descent into the cavern. He saw you in a vision follow me to the altar, where you consented to pledge your faith to me. And there you sang our old Bohemian hymn with a clear and thrilling voice, which made the whole church ring. And while you sang, he saw me grow pale and sink into the floor until at length I was dead and buried in the sepulchre of my fathers. Then he beheld you cast away your hymenial crown, push the flat stone over my head, which covered me on the instant, and dance on it, singing incomprehensible words in an unknown language, with all the marks of unbounded joy. Enraged, he threw himself on you, but you had already disappeared in a thick vapor, and he awoke, bathed in perspiration and transported with anger. He awoke me also, for his cries and imprecations made the vault echo again. I found it difficult to induce him to narrate his dream, and still more to hinder him from looking upon it as the counterpart of my future destiny. I could not easily convince him, for I was myself laboring under morbid mental excitement and had never tried previously to dissuade him when I saw him place implicit belief in his visions and dreams. Nevertheless, I hoped that he had ceased to think of it or attach any importance to it, 
for he never said a word on the subject. And when I asked him to go and speak to you about me, he did not oppose it. It never entered into his conceptions that you should seek me here, and his frenzy was roused only when he saw you attempt the task. Nevertheless, he displayed no hatred against you till the moment we met him on our return from the subterranean galleries. He then informed me very laconically, in Bohemian, that he intended to deliver me from you. That was his expression, and to destroy you the first time he met you alone, for that you were the bane of my life and had my death written in your eyes. Pardon these details, and say if I had not ground for apprehension. Let us speak no more about it, if you please. The subject is truly painful. I love Zdenko as a second self. His mental wanderings were identified with my own to such an extent that we had the same dreams, the same thoughts, and even the same physical indispositions. But he was more cheerful, and to some extent of a more poetical turn than myself. The phantoms which appalled me were, to his more genial organization, simply melancholy, or, perchance, even gay. The greatest difference between us was that my attacks were irregular, whereas he was ever the same. While I was a prey to delirium or despair, he lived constantly in a kind of dream, in which all objects assumed a symbolical aspect, and this was even of so sweet and gentle a form that in my lucid moments, certainly the most painful of all, I required the sight of his peaceful delusion to cheer and reconcile me to life. Oh, my friend, said Consuelo, you should hate me, as I hate myself, for having deprived you of so devoted and precious a friend. But his exile has lasted long enough. He is by this time surely recovered from his temporary attack. Probably, said Albert, with a strange and bitter smile. Well, then, replied Consuelo, whose mind revolted at the idea of Sedenko's death, why not recall him? I should see him without fear, I assure you, and we should make him forget his prejudices. Do not speak of it, Consuelo, said Albert sorrowfully. He will never return. I have sacrificed my best friend, my companion, my servant, my stay, my provident, laborious mother, my dear, submissive, unconscious child, he who provided for all my wants, for my innocent yet melancholy pleasures, he who upheld me in moments of despair and who resorted to force and cunning to prevent me from leaving my cell when he saw me incapable of preserving my own dignity and existence in the world of living men. I have made this sacrifice without remorse, because I felt I ought. For since you have faced the dangers of the cavern and restored me to reason and a sense of duty, you are at once more sacred and precious to me than even Zdenko himself. This is an error and outrage, Albert, a moment's courage is not to be compared to a whole life of devotion. Do not suppose that a wild and selfish love has induced me to act as I have done. I should have thrust it back into my bosom and shut myself up in my cabin with Zdenko rather than break the heart of the best of men. But the hand of providence was in it. 
I had resisted the impulse which mastered me, had fled from your sight so long as the dreams and presentiments which made me hope to find in you an angel of mercy were unrealized. Up to the moment when a frightful vision deranged the gentle and pious Sedenko, he shared my aspirations, my hopes, my fears, and my religious desires. Poor soul, he mistook you the very day you declared yourself. The light of his soul grew dim, and he was condemned to confusion and despair. It was my duty also to abandon him, for you appeared wrapped in rays of glory. Your descent was a prodigy, and you cleared away the mists from my eyes. By words which your calm intellect and education as an artist did not permit you to study and prepare. Pity and charity alike inspired you, and under their wonder-working influence, you told me what I ought to do in order to know and understand the life of man. What then did I say so wise and so good? Truly, Albert, I know not. Nor I either, but heaven was in your voice and in the calm serenity of your looks. With you, I learned in an instant that which I never should have learned alone. I knew that my previous life was an expiation, a martyrdom, and I sought the accomplishment of my destiny in darkness, solitude, and tears, in anger, study, penance, and macerations. You gave me another life, another martyrdom, one all patience, sweetness, toleration, and devotion. My duties, which you so simply traced out for me, beginning with those toward my family, I had forgotten them and my family, through excess of kindness, overlooked my faults. Thanks to you, I have atoned for them, and from the first day I knew you, I have felt, from the calmness that I have experienced, that no more was required from me at present. I know indeed that this is not all, and I await the ulterior revelations of my destiny, but I have confidence because I have found an oracle that I can consult. You are that oracle, Consuelo. You have received power over me, and I shall not rebel against it. I therefore ought not to have hesitated a moment between the power which was to regenerate me and the poor passive creature who had hitherto shared my distresses and borne with my outbreaks. Do you speak of Zdenko? But how do you know that I might not have cured him also? You saw that I had already gained some power over him, since I could convince him by a word when he was about to kill me. Oh, heavens, it is too true. I have been wanting in faith. I was afraid. I knew what the oaths of Zdenko were. He had sworn to live only for me, and he kept his oath in my absence as since my return. When he swore to destroy you, I did not think it possible to change his resolution, and I determined to offend, banish, crush, destroy him. To destroy him? What do you mean, Albert? Where is Sedanko? You ask me, as God asked of Cain, where is thy brother? Oh, heavens, you have not killed him, Albert. And Consuelo, as she uttered the word, clung to Albert's arm and looked at him with a mixture of pity and terror. But she recoiled from the proud and cold expression of his pale countenance, where grief seemed to have fixed her abode. I have not killed him, yet I have taken his life assuredly, 
and if I have preferred regret and repentance to the fear of seeing you assassinated by a madman? Have you so little pity in your heart that you always recall my sorrow and reproach me with the greatest sacrifice I could make? You also are cruel. Cruelty is never extinct in a human breast. There was such solemnity in this reproach, the first that Albert had ever addressed to her, that Consuelo felt more than ever the fear which he inspired her. A sort of humiliation, weak perhaps, but inherent in the female heart, replaced the pride with which she had listened to his passionate declaration. She felt herself humbled, no doubt misunderstood, because she did not wish to discover his secret, save with the intention, or at least the desire, of responding to his affection if he could justify himself. At the same time, she perceived that she was guilty in the eyes of her lover, because if he had really killed Zdenko, the only person in the world who had no right to condemn him, was she whose life required the sacrifice of another life, infinitely precious to Albert. Consuelo could not reply. She endeavored to speak of something else, but tears choked her utterance. In seeing them flow, Albert was distressed in his turn, but she begged him never to recur to so painful a subject, and promised on her part, with a feeling bordering on despair, never to mention a name which caused him such terrible emotion. They were constrained and unhappy during the remainder of the day, and vainly endeavored to converse on some other subject. Consuelo did not know either what she said or heard. This sad but deep tranquility, with such a load on his conscience, bordered on madness, and Consuelo could not justify her friend save in remembering that he was mad. If he had killed some bandit in fair fight in order to save her life, she would have felt gratitude and perhaps admiration for his strength and courage. But this mysterious murder, doubtless perpetrated in the darkness of the cavern, this sepulchre dug in the very sanctuary, this morose silence after such a deed, the stoical fanaticism with which he dared to lead her to the grotto and there deliver himself up to the charms of music, all this was horrible and Consuelo felt that love for such a man was a feeling which could not enter her heart. When could he have committed the murder, she asked herself. I have not for months seen a trace of remorse on his brow. Was there not, perhaps, blood on his hand some day when I offered him mine? Dreadful! He must be made of stone or ice, or else he loves me to the verge of madness, and I who so wished to inspire a boundless love, I who so bitterly regretted being loved so coldly. Behold what heaven has reserved for me in answer to my wish. Then she once more endeavored to guess at what time Albert had accomplished his horrible sacrifice. She thought it must have been during her severe illness, when she was indifferent to all outward things. But when she remembered the tender and delicate care which Albert had lavished on her. She could not reconcile the two characters, so dissimilar to each other and to those of mankind in general. Lost in dreary reverie, she received with an absent air the flowers which Albert gathered for her on their way, and which he knew she loved. 
She never even thought of leaving him and entering the castle alone, so as to conceal their meeting, and whether it was that Albert thought no more about it, or that he deemed it unnecessary to dissemble any longer with his family, he did not suggest such a precaution, and they found themselves face to face with the canoness at the entrance of the castle. For the first time, Consuelo, and doubtless Albert also, observed those features, which were really ugly in spite of their deformity, inflamed with anger. "'It is high time for you to return, Signora,' said she to the porporina, in a voice trembling with indignation. "'We were really uneasy about Count Albert. His father, who would not breakfast without him, wished to have a conference with him this morning, which you have thought proper to make him forget.' And, as for yourself, there is a young fellow in the saloon who calls himself your brother, and who awaits your arrival with rather ill-bred impatience. After having expressed herself in these extraordinary terms, the poor Wenceslawa, terrified at her own exploit, set off for her own apartment, where she coughed and wept for more than an hour. End of chapter 57With such a load on his conscience, 